Welcome back to the second edition of the Chat Sports Podcast. It's been a little longer break than we had anticipated, but today I have with us Mike Lorenega. He's a finance expert. And uh, Mike, what's your first thoughts on the season so far in baseball? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's been an interesting start so far. Um, just as we, it always is. You have uh, the Padres are off to a bit of a tough start, but we kind of saw that one coming. Um, you know, I'm a big Giants fan, so I'm looking to see if they can repeat. Our uh, pitching hasn't been as good as we had kind of hoped. Uh, you know, Wednesday again in particular has seemed pretty much the same as last year, despite the fact that uh, we were definitely hoping for a better year there. Um, but, you know, the Dodgers kind of are who we thought they were, uh, a collection of very high-priced, some of the overpriced talent brought in by an owner that uh, basically has bottomless pits for a budget. It's not a bad place to be, like the Yankees of the West Coast. Pretty much, yeah, actually, given the way the Yankees have been spending, uh, you know, with their whole get under $189 million luxury tax line next year, the Yankees don't even seem like the Yankees. Although it's hard to say $189 million is, exact, is exactly fiscally prudent. But, uh, yeah, the Dodgers are definitely getting some of the Yankees of the West Coast, uh, much like many of our Dodger fan friends have been putting on my Facebook wall for the past fiscal year. Um, even though it was uh, very nice to see them miss the playoffs last year. Something that this year's Yankees are probably going to replicate as well. I'm hoping to see the Yankees miss the playoffs. I, I, that's all I root for in baseball nowadays is the Yankees to miss the playoffs. That's the life of a Padre <laughs> and Pirate fan. Yeah, given the state of your franchise, so the Pirates, you know, Andrew McCutcheon is a legitimate NPP candidate. I mean, the guy can pretty much do everything in terms of hitting, fielding, covering uh Yeah, you gotta get Pedro Alvarez away from the candy, and you gotta deal with the Super Two situation. So you gotta be patient. Right, which is a situation the Giants kind of found themselves in with Buster Posey uh, before, but uh, you know he's getting paid now, so fortunately they'll be avoiding that. Even though they didn't really get a huge hometown discount there. No, they didn't. They locked him up for a lot of years, so he better stay healthy for you guys. You know, I mean. His injury that he had was not necessarily a use one. I mean, as a catcher, you kind of need to have your ankle in good shape, but it's not like he was a pitcher whose arm wore down. It was a fluke incident where a scrub player on the Marlins, uh, cousin, basically was trying to do his best to impress the manager and keep his spot on the roster. So even though he was clearly out, uh, he ran into our catcher and uh, ruined our season in 2011. Uh, I'll try to avoid having too much uh, anger about Giants-related issues. Um, but, you know, I think Posey uh, definitely has the makeup uh, to continue performing at his level. Uh, and if he, you know, he obviously, you know, your, your time as a catcher 
especially if you're a, a prime offensive player like Posey is and how important he is to the Giants' offense, you're not going to stay a catcher for long. You know, if you look at guys like Craig Biggio, he moved off the catcher and played second base and then eventually center field um, so that they could keep his bat in the lineup more often and avoid the wear and tear that goes into your knees so much. Um, you know, whereas catchers like Brad Hoffman, um, that stayed behind the plate, you know, Boston is a fantastic defensive catcher, but his offense, you know, really ground down towards the end. So likely the Giants will look to either move closely to first base or third base uh, as things go on to continue to keep to the field and keep them upright and producing for the entirety of the contract, which, you know, is somewhat of a problem because they have Brandon Pelt at first base and, and Sandoval at third, but given Sandoval's continued battles with uh, with weight gain, and that's, you know, we'll see how long his career is there. Um, but, you know, given Posey's uh, production and the contract size and the fact that basically on the open market, every weight above replacement is worth roughly $6 million, and a number that has been inflating over the past couple of years, uh, particularly with the huge revenue streams that are coming in from the NLB TV contract, which will represent about $25 million a year per team uh, kicking in. Uh, you know, the, the, that contract will probably, uh, hopefully look, uh, undervalued going forward. Especially considering he got less than, uh, Joe Maurer did in his deal. So we're talking about teams with talent here. I want to quickly switch things up and get into a team that has probably one player that anyone can name and as many players on the field as are in the stands, and that's the Miami Marlins, no longer Florida. I, I, just from an ownership standpoint, how can they get away with what they've done? It's absolutely criminal that there's this new stadium in that city and Jeff Loria gets to be the owner and rake in close to $50 million. I mean, at least twenty five coming from MLB BAM based on what you just stated. What is the, your thoughts on that? It's, it's highway robbery is what it is. I mean, owners... A baseball team or any professional sports team is essentially the franchise of a larger entity. It's kind of like a McDonald's is a franchise of, you know, any individual store is a franchise of the greater McDonald's. Uh, just the same, each individual franchise is a franchise of Major League Baseball. And the owner can do with it technically as he pleases, but unlike a restaurant that's franchised, uh, you, you have, there's much more local involvement. I don't feel any particular ownership of my baseball of my you know, local burger joint, but the local fans grow up and support uh, so much of the team and the way the teams are where they, they travel and they win championships and there's so much national media coverage, it comes to represent a region and it's a part of each fan's identity. I, you know, if you catch a fan talking about teams, a lot of times they'll be referring to it as a we. Uh, if I talk about the Giants, a lot of times they'll say, oh, we should acquire a bat or something like that, or we got a good deal. Um, however, the owner is the one that's ultimately in control of that. So as a fan, you're in a tough position because that's not – the team is a public trust, but somebody else controls it. And that owner, in a lot of cases, is looking at it as an asset that needs to make money. You know, a lot of times in the 90s you had, and some, in some cases still today, professional sports teams that are actually owned by – Corporations, you know, we had Fox News owning Dodgers for a while, or News Corp, excuse me, um, which is basically Fox, uh, owning the Dodgers. And, you know, that's a professional company that it had a duty to its shareholders to turn a profit. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll see 
uh, or are basically wealthy individuals that are just looking at it as uh, a toy that they play with. It's something to lord over their friends that, uh, oh, hey, look at this, I own this team. If you look at Jerry Jones and whatnot, the way his actions and spending have been very much in line with something that's kind of a play thing. I mean, if he was looking to run that as an honest business, there's no way he just saw himself as the GM. Uh, but some owners are, you know, that's, he's a multi-billionaire, so he basically does not care about money. Um, some other owners are, you know, more honest families where they've, you know, the family bought the franchise some time ago. You know, if you look at the Rooney family with the Steelers, uh, you know, that's been a family asset for a generation. Uh, and so they obviously, you know, they're wealthy individuals, but so much of that wealth is tied up in the team. They were not an outside wealthy person that came in and bought the franchise. Uh, a la, you know, Tom Henry with the Red Sox. Uh, but in the case of some owners, uh, like Jeffrey Loria, he basically just used it as a way of making money. And so if you kind of track the whole process of how he came to own the Mont Marlins, and uh, it involved, and Joe Carey actually had an article on this uh, on Grandland.com a couple months back. And very insightful read, uh, something that everybody is interested in the situation should follow. Um, he basically did it his way through a, uh, well, in an investment that you or I would say is significant, but in the, in the scope of these things was relatively minor. Uh, and I believe it was uh, in fact, a little over $40 million uh, in investment in the Expos. Uh, and then he basically parlayed that and using shareholder rights that I won't get into, into having a majority stake of the team, which then was having difficulty and Major League Baseball was in a position of basically having to contract or move it. So Major League Baseball treated him as a favorite nation and basically gave him the Marlins after they took control of the Nationals. Um, they arranged for him to have a very comfortable sale into that. Fortunately, uh, Tom Henry had owned, I believe it's Henry, and his group had moved from the Marlins to the Red Sox, and so there's a bit of trading around going on there. Uh, so Lorna basically finagled his way into owning this team in Miami, which I would argue should be a fantastic market for the baseball, considering it's a fairly, relatively large metropolitan area um, and that has a significant uh, Cuban and you know, generally uh, Caribbean population. And if you look at the makeup of the major leagues nowadays, there's a significant portion of the players are from you know, the Dominican, Cuba, Venezuela, you know, and just generally around that area. Uh, so there's a large makeup of people that should identify with that, and it's a very baseball-loving culture um, down there. So theoretically, that should be a hotbed of baseball activity. But because of Loria's ways of basically building up every once in a while to have through homegrown talent to have a good team, which every manager should do, and, every, and most of the successful teams lately have done. You know, the Giants did that. The Red Sox in 04 and 07, despite some large acquisitions and eventually some large salaries, there were a lot of homegrown talent or talent picked up off the waiver wire for little. David Ortiz came over as basically a waiver claim off of uh, off of the Twins. Uh, and so those and where those teams are in trouble is when they bought a high price free agent that could fix that. Florida basically sort of went that and said, all right, after success, or I have these guys that are getting expensive, I'm going to get rid of all of them. And has perpetuated multiple fire sales and has had several, you know, where you look at Dontra Willis, who at the time of the trade was a very intriguing prospect and who is an extremely popular player. And Miguel Cabrera, who has been just annihilating the baseball for the Tigers and has become good at MVP. You know, he came up with the Marlins. He was on the team when they won the World Series in 03. 
and drop the shit out of the about to start making money. But the only players that they actually committed money to ever was Andy Ramirez, who was eventually became a malcontent and was shipped out last year as the first part of the purge, along with all the other high vice free agents that Gloria basically duped. Yeah, Gloria completely lied to the public, and I think that's where people will take issue at this, is that no one has any issue with an owner running the team like a business and trying to make money, and usually to make money you should be somewhat competitive. You don't have to be playoff competitive. But when the stadium is publicly financed, it's just hard to believe there's no recourse possible, which there really isn't, and that's that's the sad part about this. And it just, it's such a shame that Bud Selig is, I, I just don't think he's a great leader and not identifying things like this. I mean, they've had so many issues with steroids, with the Expos, now with the Marlins, with the A's in Oakland not being able to get to San Jose. It's just bad leadership at the top. And it's, there needs to be some new sort of vetting process of ownership to make sure these things don't happen because... A publicly financed stadium is not something that you can just be like, oh, well, you know, so what, so what? You know, we just, what was it, $600 million, and they got 30 years there now? Right, exactly. I mean, the, the ownership vetting process, I, ostensibly there is an ownership vetting process where the other owners have to approve it, and they have to check, you know, certain debt equity requirements about investments. But clearly that was not the case, judging by exactly how much Frank McCourt had to invest when he bought the Dodgers, which I think was actually a wad of chewed-up gum and a uh, pen. But he somehow was able to buy the Dodgers via debt in uh, an extremely aggressive leverage buyout. Uh, so, yeah, Major League Baseball doesn't really have much of a vetting process. And, you know, part of that is their prerogative. But considering that this is so much of a public trust and, so many of these stadiums are financed with public money. Um, you know, obviously, at some stadiums, uh, like the Giants at t Park, which was financed entirely via private financing of the team. However, they actually got some hot water. There's some, apparently some facts or uh, flag about that, because it's not a dangerous precedent. If all of a sudden teams were funding their own stadium, then they could no longer get the free money from the government. Uh, in the Marlins case, the government... That's a $500 million check, and I know the government throws a line of a lot of money, but that's a pretty big check even for a local government to write, especially when so many of these local municipalities are in trouble. Um, like if you look at Stockton in California, it was the largest municipal bankruptcy ever. And considering the way that so many of these uh, municipalities are, are troubled because of the, uh, there's still been a problem stemming from pensions and the uh, huge loss of revenue and property value that came out of the housing bubble. Um, and Florida was extremely hard hit by that. There was a lot of sex properties up in Miami, and not exactly the economy there as much. So to keep this $400 million obligation, $400 million obligation, uh, that they're going to have to pay for with, you know, just coming off the tax fund, uh, that's a huge deal. And that's something that they were hoping to offset through increased taxes on the Marlins from season six, from ticket sales. They're always going to get more increased traffic to the region for people going to the game and giving the stadium for all their juices. But this lawyer and his art house fandom decided was that John Alcorn will tax you out there in center field. And it, it's really the means of value of the property there. And at the same time, you know, basically destroying the city over. And, and that's the kind of thing that there really should be legal action. I mean, I, I don't 
don't know if, if a suit would work out because there's you know, there's no real implicit contract of, oh, yeah, we built you your stadium, you have to actually do something good. But I mean, that's an implicit contract is something explicit or written down, so it would be hard to actually put legal action. But there clearly is a violation of public trust that you're seeing with these minuscule and other things. I mean, the Marlins had been so bad about, you know, engendering any good faith with the, the, the local population because of the fact that they continually maintain a low payroll, uh, despite the fact that they've won two World Series in the past 16 years. Um, and there aren't very many teams that can say that. And they have finally started to build up some credibility, at least a little bit, with, with the new stadium and the high price rate of signing. Yet, Florida decided to completely scrape and rebuild the whole thing immediately um, after after doing that. And, it's, um, and for the Fed, I've seen it so many times, especially after Loya said, no, I'm not doing it anymore, I'm going to invest and, you know, turning in all these players. It's, it's a long time to complain about not being able to bring in players, but it's a dumpy old stadium. Well, the state built a brand new stadium, and he still was getting rid of all of his players and, and putting together an awful product on the field. It, it, I feel bad for Mike Stanton, who's an absolutely fantastic player who is going to be stuck uh, in Miami playing in front of empty stadiums and getting walked continually. Um, the only good news for Stanton is that uh, he will probably be traded soon for a part. Yeah, they won't even want a good arbitration with him, so they'll get rid of him as soon as they can because that's what they do now. It, it just this is also, yeah. I think, bad. Bud Selig has the ability to act in the best interest of baseball. One thing there would be getting rid of Loria quietly behind the scenes. But it's just identifying that the state of Florida in Miami itself is a bad market for summer baseball. It. It's just what you have here is you have it's old spring training homes. So the fans that are there that are older have raised their kids to be fans of the teams that have spring training homes there. So, you know, that's you have pirate fans in Florida. You have Philly fans in Florida. Not to mention you have all the Yankee fans coming down from New York, retiring in Florida and being Yankee fans still and Met fans. So you also have the retirement community aspect of it. So those people aren't even going to go to the ballpark. The Marlins do fairly well on TV, but they aren't going to draw people to the stadium unless they're winning. And it just is so obvious, and it was they had an easy out by not building a stadium and relocating this team out of the state, and they didn't take it. Now they're stuck, and it just looks pathetic. I don't know. I mean, we can argue. You mentioned that Miami you thought was a good, good market, and I completely disagree, but we can get into that if you want. I don't get injured. I'm going to I mean, you point out that all oh, Florida has a, is a spring training home for a lot of different stadiums. So there's a ton of teams that are around the Phoenix area, uh, you know, the Giants out there, the Cubs are out there, and there's many others that I could, you could name off. But you don't see the Diamondbacks having that much of a problem because they haven't betrayed the fan trust. And they, they, they built a team. They had popular players. They actually they didn't. Scrape rebuild. I mean, they've kind of been doing that lately, but they at least maintain an interesting crop on the field, and they don't have complete fire sales. They've had situations where, all right, well, it's not working with the, you know, you know, Luis Gonzalez and Troy Gloss and that crew anymore, and we got to get younger. And yeah, they, they had this recent situation where they they traded Justin Upton, but they still have a pretty decent team this year. Many people are actually picking them to be in the thick of it in the NL West, but they have good attendance figures. They sold their stadium reasonably well. 
Um, and they have other fans and other teams that have been going there for a long time. And the, the Diamondbacks came out later than the Marlins. So if you want to talk about teams that should theoretically have problems because of the fact that spring training is in their city, the Diamondbacks should have just as much, if not more, of a problem as the, uh, uh, as the Marlins. That's true to an extent. I'd also let you want to watch a Diamondbacks game when the Cubs are in town and see how many Cubs fans are in that stadium. But the main different things the Diamondbacks did well, differently. Cubs, Cubs are well everywhere. They're just Cubs fans want to go to Giants game right, well, in Air- area. Okay, that's true. Arizona is a, though, a large retirement community for Chicago. But anyway, the point being was, though, the Diamondbacks did a few things correctly. In the very beginning, the Diamondbacks had a stadium in place. They didn't do what the Marlins did, moving into a football stadium. So they were able to build some sort of sense of excitement there. They also didn't have the Florida has the Florida State League, which is the low A, which is high A actually. It's so it is a minor league system above rookie league. So you also have spring training plus rookie league plus a high A level ball going on in Florida, whereas Arizona you just have rookie league and spring training. The other difference I would kind of go with here is that it's a different demographic. The rich parts of Florida are like Palm Beach, which are further away from Miami. I know Miami has its nice, ritzy things, but Arizona, you have Scottsdale, which is nice, and you also have nothing to do if you're wealthy there. They just go to Scottsdale or go to the games. Whereas in Miami, if you're wealthy, you probably don't really care about baseball, so you're not going there, nor do they have as much of the corporate center as you would with uh, even Phoenix, and Phoenix isn't the best corporate center either. But I still think it's different demographics, particularly looking at when the makeup of the people and the disposable income and the type of, I guess, almost ethnicity they come from with that disposable income and where they want to spend that. Well, I mean, I, I your premise is in there is that inherently the people in Arizona like baseball because you said the rich people of Mexico of uh, Miami don't like baseball. That there's an important assumption that the people in Arizona. No, like no, I'm baseball. saying they're in Palm Beach. They're I'm further sure away. But if you want to look at if you want to look at other alternatives, Phoenix, football, basketball, baseball, hockey, Miami, football, basketball, baseball, hockey. So there's just as many pro sports teams, and I know you both the. The NHL franchises in both cities are struggling and probably shouldn't be there. But there's just as many alternatives in Arizona as there are in Miami. Now, given, you know... I'm, but I'm that, talking like I mean, beach time. I'm talking like things, clubs. I'm talking restaurants, all those things. Uh, Arizona actually has a pretty decent restaurant out there in Phoenix. Uh, but I mean, even aside from that, if you want to talk about getting the demographics and whatnot, you know... It, a lot of the, you know, there's been an undercurrent in NBA discussions about difficulty of, uh, potential difficulty on the line of drawing, considering it's a predominantly African American league, where it's based on the pricing, you know, it's, you're generally going towards a wealthier, generally more Caucasian, uh, demographic. Baseball is much cheaper to go to, and, you know, considering the, the base of players that are in there, there's a lot of, you know, Hispanic or Latino players, Theoretically, that should appeal to that demographic, and it's much more ingrained in, in terms of the culture around there and, and baseball fields and football. If you want, if, if your argument is that well, there's minor league teams in there year round. If anything else, that should engender a positive attitude towards baseball and make them want to see a the baseball in its highest product, which kind of gets to the bigger issue. You need to have the, the, the highest product. It's why Americans don't really. I mean, analyzed attendance figures have definitely been increasing, but. It is definitely not on the same level as, you know, Champions League and whatnot. And you actually see quite a few more fans 
uh, soccer in America, they're talking about being Arsenal fans or Manchester United fans or whatever. People inherently root for teams, teams that are played on the highest level. And if you're talking about baseball, the highest level is the NLB. So if you have a decent NLB product on the field, I don't care how many minor leagues or how many other other systems are there, the fans are going to drift towards the NLB product. But do you think that there could be a better market for that franchise? Uh, I think there's a better owner for that franchise. I think the fans have been burned by the ownership so many times that it's hard to, you know, see, to commit to it. But to go to another sporting example, stuff off the top of my head, the uh, Dallas Mavericks had been kind of a doormat for a while, and then Cuban came in, made a commitment to winning by enhancing its facilities and drawing in players, and then all of a sudden, they've been a powerhouse for the past decade plus. Part of that's because they have Dirk Nowitzki, but they've been drawing players to come in there, and the fans have been responding in droves. Meanwhile, the Marlins, despite having some of the, the, the I think it is the newest park in the majors, because of the fact their owner has made no commitment of his own money, and basically showed that he cared less about the team, the fans have been staying away in droves. The fans respond to his ownership commitment. And, and, and until they get an owner in there that is committed to the team financially and with the time and, and care and doesn't put up false fronts and sue fans for not paying for their season tickets or not re-upping their season tickets like he has been doing, um, the fans aren't going to respond. So if you get a new owner in there, fans will return. So do you think this is like a Dodger situation where when the court leaves, they'll come back in droves and, you know, if Gloria leaves, they'll just come flooring in like he, the new owner's a savior? Or is that only if the new owner spends I mean, the way the Dodgers' new owners did right away? Absolutely. I mean, fans in L.A. hated Frank McCourt. Absolutely hated him. He was, they, they just talked about how he's ruining the team and basically stealing money. I mean, there's just so much, especially once the divorce case came out, it was huge. And the fans in L.A. loved it. The, the community down here loves the Dodgers. And, you know, they, um, because they, they viewed the money as going to McCourt's pockets to pay for his luxurious lifestyle and the debt that he put on the team and, and everything else going on there, they didn't want to come to support the team. And you saw attendance figures drag down. Attendance figures still looked artificially high. I think that attendance only sagged about 400,000 people from the year before to uh, McCourt's last year on the job. But that's, I mean, if you look at the actual people going to the games, it's much less than that. But a much greater drop off than that. But once the new owner came in, stadium's packed again. That's very true. I, I enjoyed thoroughly that down year for the Dodgers when no one was showing up. No more hearing low stories <laughs> everywhere. Well, it's certainly safer to be a Giants fan if there's fewer Dodger fans around. That's true. Safer. That's that's a whole other issue that we should get into sometime. I mean, my goodness, what's going on out there? Uh, but you know these these owners they're they should be kind of more alpha males where they believe in winning and they believe in winning in terms of dollar figures and it's a funny thing because the way they look at winnings with dollars but then on the field they could care less some of them like Loria but a lot of them like Cuban that's still the end all be all most of the time even though some years he seems to take breaks from that because he knows he doesn't want to completely lose a ton of money here because broadcast broadcast.com was the biggest joke on the planet and the fact that he's a billionaire is a joke um it's a whole other story too but well I mean Loria I mean, it kind of gets down to you mentioned being a 
taste. And those are just being an alphabet, but having an interest in it. Lori is an art dealer. He cares a lot about art. And <laughs> it shows in their center field statue. But he doesn't care. I mean, I don't think he cares as much about baseball. I mean, if you had pride and you love baseball, you could not be happy fielding that team and trading away the talent you were, unless you were rationalizing other things is more important. So if they had an owner down there that actually cared about the baseball and the local team, that would be the best thing for them. Right. But do you do you think we're breeding children nowadays to accept mediocrity with this whole winning's not everything in new sports and like how that's going to translate not just with how they're fans of teams but like how they do in life when they have to have their parents and be involved in a job interview process and things like that. It, we definitely are changing our societal culture. We have a lot of a lot more helicopter parents and it's a, it's a tough situation. I mean, you get with where everybody gets a participation award and you have youth sports where they don't even keep score. Um, I think it makes the kids more coddled. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to ruin a kid's psyche by having him feel terrible for missing a last second shot in some seventh, oh, he's a seventh grade, uh, you know, free throw shooter or something like that playing basketball. But, um, yeah, at the same time, you have to have some sort of an edge. And I guarantee you, even if, the, if there's no official score being kept, the kids are keeping score in their heads and they're thinking about it themselves. So rather than, you know, condone some sort of, it's okay, Tommy, you just try. I mean, absolutely, give your best. And if, if that's your best, that's great. But, I mean, we have a meritocracy as a society. Um, you know, there, if you are you know, a fantastic athlete, you're going to go to the major leagues and you're going to get paid. If you are a mass savant and can just crunch numbers fantastically well, you're going to find a way to make money putting together some fantastic algorithm that makes the next investing machine that much faster so that you can get your trades in in a tenth of a second instead of two tenths of a second, and you're going to get paid for it. If you are a natural leader, you will find your way and you will be running teams, running companies, however you want to do it, and you will get paid for it. If you are not good at that, you need to be guided away from it. And I think that as a society, if we continue to coddle kids and just tell them that and kind of ignore the the fact that there is an outcome in things and it's not just everybody wins, uh, then as a society we're hurting ourselves and we become too dependent upon, you know, our parents, whether it's the government or whatever entity it is that's supporting us, to take care of us and we don't do enough to provide for ourselves. Right. And the, and the notion that someone else should take care of me or someone else will help me i mean that almost seems to me like it's a byproduct of the fact that there's not cuts in high school teams on some levels and that we do you know there's no big trophy for the winners anymore everyone gets a trophy well i mean i, I don't have a problem with no cuts on like the freshman team where a lot of times it's kids that are just really developing into their bodies in a situation where you know, they wouldn't have been able to develop talents or, or haven't been properly trained. But when you get to the varsity level or where something that competition actually matters, you know, that they, there needs to be cut. You need to be there needs to be some sort of system in place to, you know, reward the best of the best. And it, it's tough because especially when you're dealing with kids, you don't want to deal with your know, hurt psyches and the potential scars that could bear. But um, you know, at the same time, you. You can't ignore these things that we have in society, and you can't gender too much of, uh, of a, you know, a paternal state where you're 
worried about everybody's hurt feelings. I mean, as a society, we kind of want to have our cake and eat it too, where we want to be, um, you know, uh, we want to take care of these kids and make sure everybody gets participation trophies. But when it gets to the top level, we say winning is everything. You know, no players like Barry Bonds, well, maybe that's a bad example, but you know, players that are often defined by did he win the big one. Before last year, King James was vilified for the fact that he had never won the title. Um, and so much of our global landscape is, oh, this guy, he's a winner. He's not a winner. And if you're going to get down to it, you have to think that, well, that starts somewhere. And as a kid, you either have a winner or a loser. And you can't have it be everybody gets a participation trophy until you get to the top where, hey, if you aren't a winner, you're nobody. Um, so that's, it's kind of a schizophrenic state that we need to, as a society, rationalize. Right. And do you think that people actually, in, I think that setbacks actually help people. Like they help you progress. They help you learn. They help you go forward. And when you're viewing people that have had setbacks, it, it makes them more endearing almost. I, you look at Michael Jordan and the story of him getting cut in a JV basketball in high school. It makes his story that much better. And it probably made him a better player because it put a chip on him. And I wonder when you look at someone like LeBron James, who was, you know, the, the second coming since he was in ninth grade, 10th grade, whenever, junior high probably, if he didn't lose in the finals, would we even have celebrated? Would people, I mean, people loved him for a cent and he made the decision. Do you think people still would love him if he didn't go through any set, the one setback that he had? Because people love him now, and I don't know why, but that's a different thing. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I would know Jordan getting cut from his team, I've heard various stories about how that actually went about. And he, he ended up just being a terribly competitive person, so I'm not sure that's a best example. I'd say Aaron Rodgers going to JUCO is another example of someone that might actually be a more well-rounded individual. Uh, in terms of King James, uh, yeah, you know, he definitely was the you know, uh, the main guy that was heralded through his whole life and had, uh, had you know, it wasn't necessarily handed to him on a platter, but everybody kind of celebrated him his whole life. And then you know, I think for him, part of the reason that he became what he is today was because in 2010, he was the villain. Everybody turned on him, and for the first time in his life, he wasn't the good guy, and everybody was pissed off at him, and he didn't know why. And then when he lost, everybody rejoiced about it, and that kind of gave him that chip on his shoulder that he needed to become the player he's today, where he decided, oh, I should probably go down to the coast more often and, and embrace that side of myself, and I, I shouldn't care so much about what people want. And then, you know, nowadays you have people that are wholeheartedly supporting him uh, because America loves a winner. Uh, <laughs> it, it, people will look the other way on the decision because he wins. And everybody, as much as we as, as diehard sports fans will often you know, criticize bandwagon jumpers, in America we're bandwagon jumpers, and winning cures all ills. That's that's true. There's the whole – there's the wonderful Tiger Woods campaign that just came out about that in – you know, I'm, I'm really curious of what you think about that. Was that an appropriate ad? Was that just the truth being stated and people didn't like hearing it? What was your thoughts on that? Well, it, Nike's position is that that, that Tiger thing, is, and yeah, that might be his own internal motto. And I don't know when that became his motto. I think it probably became his motto short, sometime in late 2009 um, after he lost the public. But, I mean, it's definitely true, and people just don't like to hear it. Winning pretty much cures all ills. I mean, a lot of times in sports you hear about, oh, that team has good chemistry and that's why they're winning, and oh, that team has bad chemistry and that's why they're losing. Chemistry is winning. And other players have said this, and, you know, a lot of winning, winning does cure all ills. I mean, if, if the Lakers 
had come out this year and won a lot of games, you would have heard about Shaq and Co- or about uh, Dwight and Kobe and that whole thing. And, and with Tiger, you know, every writer in America was waiting to write their Tiger's back column uh, to the point where when he became number one again, they just they I think they probably had that all filled out. They just had to update the dates and tournaments. Uh, you know, it's, as, as fans, the rush of love to get back to Tiger, or the rush to get back to loving Tiger, excuse me, was overwhelming. Um, I was actually just at the Masters on Monday uh, at a practice round, and the crowd following Tiger was ridiculous. I mean, you'd get to one hole, and you'd be, you'd be able to get up to the, the wire, and, uh, and this was like, you know, the half hour before Tiger would get there. And Tiger would get there, it'd be four deep. And people were shouting all sorts of love and praise to Tiger because he's back on. And it's just, the the rush of people to get back into following the bandwagon because we all, as Americans, want to be there for something special. We want to believe that we are seeing something that will never happen again. That is a one-time event because it makes us feel like our lives are more important because we were there. We all want to be able to say, "I was there for that," which is why you know you have. I think there's probably about 200,000 people in the greater Boston area that say they were there for Fisk's home run. Um, we always want to be a part of something special, something memorable. It's our own portion of immortality. And, you know, being there for a great champion like uh, that, you know, toppled an all-time record is the best, is in a lot of cases, the closest it will ever come to something like that. Um, so that's why fans are going to rush to embrace Tiger, because they, because he can have the all, the most major titles ever of anyone, uh, in golf. And fans want to be able to say that they were there for that, that they touched immortality. If he doesn't start winning and if he's just an all-time great golfer, I mean, then all of a sudden the wins and that they're there from before and the time that they invested in this guy, reading all the stories, buying his products and trying to be like Tiger is somewhat diminished in their minds. So they have a sunk cost and invested interest in getting him back to that point and getting him to being the all-time greatest so they can say they were there. Is there anyone out there, like maybe that you know? That I'm kind of in the boat where I don't want to see him blow away any records or the greatest. I like the debate. I think it's fun when he's close and we can have these debates of who's the greatest and compare the airs and the equipment and all those fun things. Whereas if you see someone just completely blow away the field, it kind of ruins that. And I, I, I don't. I think I'm in the minority there. And correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I, I, I think most. Hardcore sports fans would be much happier sitting on a, on a bar stool arguing uh, who is better, and you know, especially if there's not uh, a, a correct a given answer. Oh, who is better, Bonds or Ruth? Well, they played in different eras. Bonds had steroids. Ruth didn't have to face you know half the population or whatnot. And yeah, you know, there's, there's arguments for both. And you and I are relatively argumentative, and we're sports purists, so we like being able to argue these kind of things. But at the same time, I mean. It, it, it has to be has been kind of cool to have seen Muhammad Ali when he was just blowing people away, or it's a, an all-time great and someone that is unquestionably the best. Uh, secretary at the horse racing and being, you know, being able to say you were there for someone that is unquestionably the best is a pretty cool thing. I mean, look at the Bulls, the, the Jordan era Bulls. They were. I mean, how many instances do you have it where a team that ha- that is undeniably the favorite? and had been for years, was so universally beloved across the country. The Bulls would come in, and I don't care who you were unless you were like the Knicks. 
you were rooting for the Bulls. You love that team. He will, everybody in the world wanted them to get to 72 wins. And that never happens. America all generally roots for the underdog. We like this, we like our, our, you know, pre-packer stories of redemption or the, you know, the team that's there early or the underdog kids that are prescribing up and beating against the evil empire, which is why, you know, so many people in America love to root against the Yankees. Um, where, you know, we love the underdog and we like to root for them. But in some cases where it's arguably where it's the best of all time, we like to be able to say that we were there for that. Is there any difference between pro and amateur sports or what's considered amateur with college? Because the March Madness, what we just finished up here, you root for the underdogs for the most part. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure Wichita State had a ton of people rooting for them up until the Final Four when they didn't want to see what they thought would be a bad title game. But you root for the underdogs there. Yet Right now, I'm pretty sure everyone's pulling for Miami in the NBA. There is definitely a difference. I mean, college and, and professional sports are different on so many levels. Um, you know, partly because you know, in college sports you have a much more, you know, direct bond to your team. In most cases, you went to the school, um, and you know, the athletes are amateurs, so it's not quite the same. There's movement around, so you know, it's it's you got much more of a bond. You're more likely to root for the underdog, partly because of the age of the athletes. They, a lot of them are really kids, um, so it's much more fun to root for a kid that's you know, playing above his head than it is to root for, you know, a grown man who's playing above his head or whatnot. So I think there definitely is something to that. And, you know, part of the reason we also root for upsets in our March Madness Bulls is we're hoping to screw up somebody else's bracket. That's true. And I'm the fool that always picks some crazy 12-13 matchup in the second round, and it ends up being in a completely different region. (laughs) I'm I'm sure your bracket definitely beat mine. It was pathetic. Well, let's let's see what we can wrap up today on our lessons that we've learned. Winning pretty much cures everything. We want to be a part of witnessing greatness, and we will forgive. Sadly to say, I think almost anything but murder. I'm I don't want to make light of that, but I'm pretty sure that's that's. Ray Lewis, we forgive murder. Ray Lewis is beloved. <laughs> You're right. I apologize, <laughs> Ray Lewis. Americans will forgive anything, I guess. Uh, we. If you so, win enough, we'll we'll let you go. If you win enough and you have a good story, we're, we're, we're down. That's that's what we do. And then uh, I guess we can also say that there's no hope for the Miami franchise until they get a new owner, and God only knows what's going to happen and how they're going to redo that situation. Yep. I think that's, that's a nice little on it. So I think that's what we've learned today. And, um, Mike, I appreciate you taking the time to be on with us, and I hope forward to having you on sometime down the road. And I'm looking forward to your article coming on chatsports.com down, sometime during summer where you're going to be really taking a deep look into ownership. And if you want to give anyone a little teaser on that, go for it right now. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's um, an article. I, I, I have a background in finance, and you know, I, I've kind of uh, – as a sports fan, I, I try and apply that where possible. And uh, what areas I, you know, looked at that and where it seems like there's a lot of misconception from the common fan standpoint is uh, the way that a lot of these owners act. Um, some of them are vilified as greedy, and some of them are rightfully so, some of them not so much. And I, I want to try and take a look at that and see, you know, are owners being rational, irrational, or just completely uh, ridiculous jerks that are greedy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm doing some work on that. It's, trying to do some research here so that it's not just me you know, spouting off numbers and opinions, um, but uh, hopefully we'll have some backing behind it and some actual analysis that uh, hopefully will uh, be helpful for common fans 
um, and I'll try and make it as uh, digestible as possible without using too many financial terms. I think it'll be an exciting subject to show more of the everyday fan why why sometimes the owners have to treat this like a business and why they do treat it like a business and what's really out there for them to gain. Yeah, absolutely. And in the meantime, uh, I always keep an eye for terrible sports writing that uh, is completely not doing its research, and I try and call them to ask for that. I hear Jim Bowden's going to be called out pretty soon as well. Uh, Jim Bowden doesn't like doing work. <laughs> well, uh, we appreciate you guys listening. We look forward to you guys listening again on the future. For Mike, uh, I'm Ryan, and th- this has been the Chat Sports Podcast, Episode 2. That's a wrap.